Welcome to the Trailer Cast with Elise Snipes. Each week, I will be sharing with you from inside my vintage trailer where I work as a therapist and share some of my musings on the human experience. I am endlessly fascinated and inspired by people. I love being a therapist and I'm deeply grateful for the intimate and beautiful work I get to do. I believe we are wildly capable of healing and making this world a better place, and this is my attempt at doing that. Sharing beauty to invoke beauty. May you find yourself inside these stories and ponderings and be better for it. Cheers. Hi. Hi. I hope you're having a beautiful week so far. I am going to take a moment to explain what weekends are. I've mentioned them a couple times, but I wanted to give you a really a fuller picture. So when I think about growth or change and hope and getting something to really stick, time is a major component in this equation. So you might hear something or read something that inspires you. You might even be in therapy and have an hour to flush your stuff out each week, but then you have to return back to your like demanding normal life. And even right now, are you multitasking? Like, what else are you doing as you're sitting or standing listening to me talk? Are you driving? Are you doing the dishes? What else are you doing right now? What would it be like for you to get to concentrate on what you need to or want to, uninterrupted, with a person to guide you through it so it isn't so overwhelming, with plenty of time to get through the big stuff so you don't stay stuck in repetition compulsion, And take care of it when the kids go to college or when you have the time or the money or the blah, blah, blah. That's what weekends are for. This right now moment. So it's Friday to Sunday. It's a personally guided experiential retreat. Okay, that's the best way I could explain it. And it's focused on unlocking you. We'll walk through your story and core beliefs, converting any beliefs that don't serve you or keep you stuck. We then would move into a process of practical activation so that you can do life right now as you know it better. Okay, so don't wait. I only have two more spots left for September and one for November. You can look at my website, www.elisesnipes.com for more information or to reserve your spot. The June weekend is sold out, but I want to encourage you, please give yourself a shot. I feel like the idea behind weekends really is giving yourself a turn. It has probably been everyone else's turn for a long time. And now it gets to be yours. So email me if you want to talk some more about it. And I can give you an idea of the practical breakdown of the weekend, what to expect, um, some things we're going to do, accommodations, basically whatever else you want to know. I hope you take yourself up on you though. So today, um, we're going to be doing a listener letter episode, and this means that I collect letters from you that you're writing in from your actual real life, Um, and disclaimer, this style of interaction is not dialogue, right? Like, we don't go back and forth and back and forth. It's a brief, direct interaction or response. So I only get like the query, not the whole story or background or some of the details that would probably shift the nature of our conversation if we were sitting together. However, there is something to be said for like this ask and answer format, just like boom, boom, something that can sometimes be sobering to hear or matter of fact, and that's on purpose. It's to help shift your perspective. 
So these listener letters, they're not prescriptions or hard facts for all people for all time. They're opportunities for us to pick something up, turn it around, look at it from different angles, marvel at the thing, and decide if we want to put it in our pocket and keep walking or huck it back in the ocean. The choice is yours. Dear Elise, how do you deal with a family member who has a narcissistic personality disorder? Oh man, okay, this is a zinger. Narcissistic personality disorder, we're going to start with a true definition. And I'm going to tell you, when you first learn about this, I'm, I think that we all become convinced that everyone we know has this, okay? But the prevalence of this diagnosis is actually less than 1% of the general population. So let's hold that for a second and split some hairs. A true narcissistic personality disorder requires this presentation. A persistent manner of grandiosity seeks excessive admiration and a lack of empathy. It starts by early adulthood and occurs in a range of situations as signified by the existence of any five of the next nine standards. A grandiose logic of self-importance, a fixation with fantasies of infinite success, control, brilliance, beauty, or idyllic love, a credence that he or she is extraordinary and exceptional and can only be understood by or should connect with other extraordinary or important people or institutions, a desire for unwarranted admiration, a sense of entitlement, interpersonally oppressive behavior, no form of empathy, resentment of others or a conviction that others are resentful of him or her, and a display of egotistical and conceited behaviors or attitudes. Okay, so you need to have any five of the next nine stand of those standards. Additionally, and this is something that I think is important, there's another model that characterizes narcissistic personality disorder or NPD as having fair or superior impairment in personality function apparent by characteristic troubles in at least two of the following four areas. Individuality, self-direction, empathy, or closeness. Okay, so I know that's a lot of jargon, but let's go with this. Okay, the standards for diagnosis are what we can observe. It's their direct behavior or interaction with others, and they're required for a diagnosis. So people can be narcissistic and not have NPD. They can have brief moments of largesse or grandiosity. They can be self-centered and emotionally immature, lacking empathy. The difference is a couple things. It's pervasive in that it happens in more places than one and with more people than just you. And there is some form of impairment. They lack relationships or directions or personal identity, which is really knowing who you are without someone having to constantly tell you which is connected to that individuality piece. Okay, so a true narcissist is less than 1% of the population, which absolutely blows my mind, but we're going to keep on going. Okay, I want you to think about something. The age factor in this. Think back on all the different standards required for diagnosis, and what do you have? Okay, I mean, I'm immediately thinking of all of our kids and all teenagers ever, right? They think that everything that they do is great. They incessantly want you to observe them doing something wonderful 
when it honestly isn't even that good. They're entitled to things that aren't theirs. They lack basic empathy and they are consumed by their own experience. Resentful of others if they are resentful of them. I mean, come on. So the reason this diagnosis can't be made for NPD until adulthood is because we would all have it if you could diagnose this at, let's just say, age three. So here's the thing about narcissism. It isn't so cute on your 43-year-old husband or your 70-year-old dad who can't seem to get his life together and it's everyone else's fault. So if you took your three-year-old to your pediatrician and listed off their behaviors according to the standards of NPD, your pediatrician would look at you like, um, okay, why don't you sit down? What's, what's the problem? This is typical behavior. This is developmentally appropriate. They're gaining a sense of self, learning how to navigate peer relationships. They understand or they're learning to understand themselves in this world and build attachment. So normal when you're three, beyond normal, it's expected even developmentally appropriate It becomes abnormal or a disorder, which by nature is something that is literally out of order, like should happen in childhood, not in adulthood. And so it's developmentally out of order or disordered when it continues to be present in adulthood. Okay. Here are some different beliefs about narcissism. Since it's a cluster B diagnosis, it means that it is going to be something that people will have forever mainly because this specific cluster of diagnoses requires self-awareness to correct. And since that's part of the problem to begin with, it usually goes untreated because you just kind of keep circling around the problem, circling around the problem, and it's really everyone else's fault. So I promise I'm going to get to answering your question, but a couple more things I want you to consider. This is the nature-nurture conversation. Were they born like this? Was it their environment? Is it drug-induced? I would say yes, 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 and more. How do you deal with a family member that has this disorder? Um, I'm a big fan of learning about things because when we are informed, things don't have as much emotional mastery over us. It helps to be a little more objective about something or someone that has become very subjective. We understand that we are not alone, which is everything, And specifically with narcissistic personality disorder, we begin with, it's not your fault. There is nothing you can do to change them. They will go on being like this. So how you deal with a family member with NPD is you deal with you. Where are you in all this? How are you doing? How does it feel to you? Are you getting missed in this equation? How is this for you and what do you need? I'm going to suggest that what you need are some superpowers. And we're going to talk about Harry Potter for a minute. So for all you Potter fans out there, I salute you. And for the rest of you who are about to stop listening, it will make sense in the end, I promise. Okay, so I'm a recent Potter fan, as in I put off reading them when they first came out because I thought they were a little like kiddish or young or just not for me. Then they were like super controversial, at least to Christians, and so I was just kind of over it. But two of my best friends are obsessed, and since I respect their literary taste and I decided it was not too late to at least give them a whirl, um, I started reading one of them in December. And being true to form, after I read this one book, I finished the entire series by the end of the month. (laughs) 
because if you're going to do something, you should really go for it. Also, I have a reading problem to be addressed at another time. Okay, anyways, I was captured by this world and the good versus evil, young versus old, birthright, magic, obviously, and our ability to either perceive it or reject it. I seriously need to do a whole Potter episode, but there are some specific magic powers that I think would be worth talking about for someone with a family member with a narcissistic personality disorder. We're going to look at two, legitimacy and occlumency. Legitimacy is, is basically mind reading. It's the ability to pull out any information out of a person's mind and interpret it clearly. Now, occlumency is pretty much the kind of the opposite or the counterpart to legitimacy. It's the ability to counter and block the power of legitimacy. So when you are dealing with true narcissism, it can be extremely hurtful, unpredictable, and confusing to be around them. And what we do as wildly creative and self-healing human beings is we try and predict the behavior or outcomes of interactions with said narcissist we begin to almost believe that we have legitimacy, that we can clearly interpret their behavior without the narcissist spelling it out. We read between their lines. We, they say something lacking empathy. We can kind of fill in the blank with what they really meant. We can attribute that to our own shortcomings. We can associate it with all the other times they have been hurtful or emotionally unavailable. When we are dealing with an irrational person, we attempt to use rational sense to predict, observe, and understand the other. I mean, you can hear where this is going, right? Because uh, your rational sense cannot possibly hold or solve irrational behavior. It will never make sense. You cannot put yourself in their shoes because you don't have NPD. You have empathy and self-awareness. So instead of focusing on their behavior of what they said or what mood they are going to be in or how they aren't going to see you accurately or hurt your feelings or miss you altogether, you need occlumency instead of legitimacy. Stop focusing on them and use your magic to protect your mind. Okay, I mean it, but really, like it's instead of putting any energy towards their illness, focusing instead on mentally protecting yourself, staying grounded and true to you. Remembering what you do know about you and about them so you don't get sucked into being the narcissistic extension. Okay, it might look like this. The statements that I do put in my mind, I see myself and I know me to be comfortable in my own skin, competent, reasonable, and easy to get along with. I don't need to bend myself to accommodate others' emotional limitations in a way that compromises my personal integrity, right? Like you're, you're kind of writing a mission statement on how you're going to stand on this information when you're interacting with a narcissist so that way you don't get like pushed or moved off course, okay? I'm going to tell you my personal one. This is to really boil it down. My own personal motto when dealing with NPDs or any personality disorder, their shit is not my shit. Their shit is not my shit, okay? The challenge of becoming turned out into this extension of the personality disorder is where we, we are like responsible to hold up this blank canvas all the time for them to project themselves onto us so they can actually see themselves. 
Now, the challenge is then as the extension, we start to believe that what's projected on that blank screen is us or ours. So what we need is some individuation or space between the NPD's projection of self and our own identity. So their shit is not my shit has been helpful for me. Feel free to borrow it. You need your own head so they can't move you off your mark and then accuse you of it. Do you need something gracious and warm and fuzzy? Do you need something fierce and radical? Do you want a song lyric? Is it a visual image, a picture of you in safety? A reminder of all the other relationships you have that are going well? What can you clothe yourself in so you stay grounded in truth? Okay, we're going to step back up again. Like 30,000 feet view. NPD is crippling. And not only for the person who has received the diagnosis, but for the entire system. This specific type of diagnosis is felt in relationship to others. It isn't something that exists in isolation. See, narcissism needs a host. It needs someone to be better than, someone to flatter them, someone to agree with their ego, someone to continue to prop them up and facilitate the emperor with no clothes syndrome. So my question to you is where are you falling in that old fable? Are you holding on to yourself so that you don't become complicit in this disorder? What magic do you need to survive? Some mental boundaries, some physical boundaries, education, books, someone else who has this in their family so you can compare horror stories, a journal, what do you need? By nature, the narcissist will suck up all the attention and air and treatment and services and medication and often substances so what do you need? And how can you not lose yourself in this or to this? I would start with working on your identity apart from this person so you can get a good grip on who you are and then stand on that with confidence, knowledge, and a little magic. Also, I want you to know that I hear you. I have been there. It is lonely and disorienting. Like a not-so-fun house of mirrors. It's crazy. But you are not. No, you are something altogether different. Go find out what that difference is and be that. Be that. Dear Elise, I'm with an alcoholic. We have a son together who is two. He knows he has a drinking problem and has said that he's an alcoholic but there are really no signs of him going to treatment. I want to leave, but at the same time don't because my own insecurities and in the hopes he will go get help for this. What is your advice on living with an alcoholic? Ah, sister, this one pulls at my heartstrings. Let's start with your facts. You are with an alcoholic. He knows he has a drinking problem, but he isn't doing anything about it. You have a two-year-old son, and he is still not doing anything about it. You want to leave, but you're not because you're insecure. I hear your loneliness and your self-doubt, and this is an enormous thing to undertake. So let's start with some other facts. Alcoholism is a disease that will only get worse. Okay, By nature and diagnosis, alcoholism is defined by increased tolerance 
meaning an increased need for more to produce the same results, and then withdrawals, meaning when someone wants to stop using, there are symptoms of discomfort because the body has been dependent on the substance to function. Okay, I'm going to be clear about this, and I've said it before. Addiction is a subtle beast. At first, it's seductive, effective, quietly powerful, drowning out all the right noises, enhancing all the right feelings at first. Eventually, this quiet beast owns you, owns your thoughts, your time, your relationships, your money, your plans, addiction. I'm going to take this further, okay? Beyond the biological idea of addiction are the psychological, emotional, and spiritual components. Okay, so beyond physical dependence and the biological disease model are the beliefs we can develop around the behavior. I need this. I deserve this. At least I'm not shooting heroin. The kids were awful today. It's just a nightcap. I can't relax otherwise. It helps me unwind. Work was stressful. It's my treat. Blah, blah, blah. Again, this beast is subtle. And there are little tiny lies in all those true statements. And those beginning beliefs lead us to create whole stories around why we must continue doing the thing that is hurting us. I am telling you, we can convince ourselves of all sorts of crazy ideas. The narrative begins to shift. The personality becomes obsessed with the behavior, with the ritual of it all, the release, the satisfaction that comes with finally procuring and slipping into that buzz. And then we become impatient, sharp, irritable at things or people that get in the way of us getting that bliss. We begin to develop a relationship with the substance itself. It is our source of comfort, peace. It's a familiar place. We feel understood. It's our daily routine, a simple reward. The disease moves from being a biological reminder to go get that to a psychological effort to defend the biological need. I want to say that again. The disease moves from being a biological reminder to go get that to a psychological effort to defend the biological need. This is when we can no longer defend against ourselves or just stop or snap out of it or quit or choose family over it because we are so caught up in the web of justifying the behavior in the first place, we can't let one part down or the whole thing will fall apart. Let me come at this from another direction. During the week, I also work at a detox. Okay, and we specialize in addiction treatment. And I'm going to tell you something. Before that addict was an addict, they were a person, a human, someone's child or father or hero, and a person who felt feelings and experienced pain. My job is to help that person identify with their core truth, with their primary and original identity, to connect deeply to themselves, to find other ways to avoid pain and find pleasure. Because that's what we're all doing, right? Like trying to move away from pain and just get a little comfort. And the thing with substances is they're really effective. They work. To effectively blank out your brain or wash away the day or numb the pain, lift you to euphoria, give you an escape. Until they own you and you're back in that place of biological addiction and you realize this thing could kill you. So I know that you wrote in with what is your advice for living with an alcoholic, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. 
Your husband is more than an alcoholic. He was once a man, probably a man who wanted to change the way he was feeling about something or someone or even himself, and he found a way to do that. Now, you have a person who lacks basic skills of delaying gratification, impulse control, self-soothing, emotional regulation, top that off with a biological need for more, and a psychological makeup to defend it all. So I have a few questions for you. What type of alcoholic is he? Does he ever get violent or mean? Does he ever drive under the influence? Does he pass out? If so, how often? Does this affect his job or your financial well-being? How is this affecting your marriage? What about your sons? Now let's get to you, your insecurities, because that is what is keeping you in your marriage. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and assume that there is more to it than that. Usually there's financial dependence, the obvious issue of childcare or custody and what will happen to the kids, and that you still love your husband. But your insecurities are not going to get any more secure. It will only get more complicated. Your son is only getting older. Something does need to change. You cannot change your husband, but you can change you. You can work on those insecurities. You can set some boundaries. You can lift your chin up and not feel victim to the alcoholic. You can still have fun and teach your son how to love and model for him healthy relationship skills. Do not lump yourself into his addiction. Do not be addicted to his addiction or to him. Turn your eyes back to your own road. What do you need? What support, what clarity, what community, what space, what healing do you need? Is it Al-Anon or Because I Love You? Is it MOPS or a religious organization? Is it a trusted friend, therapist, marriage counseling, or is it just to start being honest? Owning your feelings about how his alcoholism is affecting your family. Speaking the truth and letting him be responsible for him and you for you. Whatever you are reacting to and what I am saying, start there. Whatever is making you emotional or the most frustrated, start with that specific piece. You cannot do his heavy lifting, but you can do yours. My advice for living with an alcoholic is don't consign yourself to a life sentence of silence and resignation. You're not done yet. And neither is he. Addiction is completely and absolutely treatable. Get to the person under the problem, the person under the pain. Okay, I'm going to say one last thing to this. I feel like this letter is really highlighting the idea of substitution. That your husband is feeling something and is reaching out for something to change him or his present like state, how he's feeling. But what he's doing is he's grabbing something false, a false substitution for what he's really looking for. Is he looking for connection? Is he wanting comfort? What is he needing? Because he's grabbing a false thing. We're just going to call it alcohol. And, And same thing for you. What are you grabbing that's you're really you're substituting the re- real deal for this faux thing. Are you holding on to your insecurities? Are you addicted to your own self-loathing? What are you substituting for the real thing? For a healthy self-concept? For a healthy marriage? For hope? For the belief that things could actually get different or better? 
there's a book, if anyone is listening to this and feels challenged even by this idea, I want to recommend it to you. It's by Richard Rohr. It's called Breathing Underwater. And it's the idea of the 12 steps and how we, but, but in a totally different way. So if you're writing it off already, check it out. I challenge you to do that. It exposes the different ways in which we can become addicted to the patterns of our own thinking. And because addiction is subtle, it's not something that we are doing on purpose. There's this subconscious pattern. I mean, the way I think about it is like our brain has tracks, like a, like a roller coaster track. And when you get on, you just start going. You don't think, oh, I'm going to think this today or think that today. We have this subconscious pattern of thinking. And then when it's grooved for addiction or the idea of the pain pleasure principle, we automatically take the same track to the same result. So I want to encourage you to think about what new tracks do you need to lay down? What new way do you need to conceptualize your marriage or yourself or your husband and his addiction? How can you both pursue something that is actually satisfying or actually lasting or genuine and real? Your husband has real pain. So do you. Don't substitute a faux thing for the real thing. Alcohol is not going to solve it and neither is loneliness. I encourage you guys to think about a way that you can Look at this from a different angle and figure out what steps are next for you. Okay. Um, to those of you who also wrote in and I didn't get to your letter today, I am working on them. There are some letters that hit close to home and I want to be sure to do my own work so I don't just answer them with my own story or ones that when you write in are a bit more complex and I want to answer them with care and integrity. I want you to know that I read your words over and over again until I know them by heart. I try to listen to you, the you behind the words. I imagine you writing to me what it finally took for you to reach out. I wonder how you feel now that you said something. I hope you don't close back up. Stay in the vulnerable place. Stay in the question. Invite healing into this place. Know that your questions deserve some airtime. Be open to what answers you might come to yourself, what solutions you see or things you can try in the meantime. If there is anything I have learned from being a therapist, it is that we are wildly capable of healing, of things getting better, of us getting better, of them getting better. You are marvelously intuitive and insightful. Strong Thanks for listening. and resilient. To connect, worthy with me, suggest good. a topic for the show, or ask this. a question from your own life you would like to have answered, email me at elise at trailercast.com. E L Y S E at trailercast.com. You can also see more on the Trailercast website or follow me on Instagram at Trailercast, where you can watch the renovation of my vintage mobile office and see more from behind the scenes. Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes and tell your friends.